Part One, Chapter Twenty Seven, Part B of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Seven, Part B. The forenoon had passed, and the sound of hostile cannon was breaking the silence in our front while a battle was being fought on our left. At this dread hour, when the human mind becomes alive to the awful problem of its final abiding place, and hope, fear, and wonder pass through the preternaturally excited brain, then it is that the devout soldiers look resigned, the thoughtless grave, and the scoffers solemnly silent. The Christian soldier's Bible is in brisk demand, and as that type of manhood was now rare in the old brigade, the good book was very popular, and a score of famishing rebs were waiting to read a chapter before the signal to commence the fight was given. It would have been pathetic to watch the erstwhile, laughing, reckless, jeering infantryman waiting his turn to cram several chapters of the Bible so as to increase his chance of salvation, had it not been so humorous to hear the exclamations of the impatient throng. "'Hurry up there, Ned. We'll all get killed before you get through,' one remarked earnestly. A second soldier on the outside of the circle chimed in. "'What does Ned care if we all are damned, so he is saved?' "'That's Ned all over,' responded Walter Addison, his bosom friend. "'Make haste there, Ned Sangster. They're firing like hell over yonder.' And so on, until a vast cloud of dust began to ascend toward the sky, evidence that great bodies of men were in motion. "'Fall in!' the officers shouted, and the men sprang to their feet, the line was dressed, and the brigade headed to the front to take position. On the way we were halted, and every soldier was compelled to strip for the fight by discarding his blanket, if he had one, which was not often, oilcloth or overcoat. All these were deposited in a large pile and guards set over them, looking very much as if we did not intend to retreat. Cartridge boxes were filled with forty rounds, and in our haversacks we carried twenty more, making sixty rounds per man. Soon the crack of the skirmishers' rifles were heard. Then the artillery opened, and the purple-colored smoke drifted like mist from lowland marshes across the valley. Forward! Guide to the colors! March! Across that level plateau the first brigade moved, the flower of Virginia in its ranks, the warm blood rushing in its veins as it did in warrior ancestors centuries ago. It was a glorious and magnificent display, the line keeping perfect time, the colors showing red against the azure sky. There was no cheering, only the rattling of the equipments and the steady footfalls of the men who trod the earth with regular beat. As the brigade swept across the plain, it was stopped by a high Virginia snake fence. Hundreds of willing hands caught the rails, tossed them aside, and then instinctively touching each other's elbows, the ranks were dressed as if by magic. The first shell now streaked over us. Another burst not ten feet from the ground directly over the heads of our forces. The long chain kept intact, though close to the spot where the explosion occurred. The links vibrated and oscillated for a moment, then grew firm again and pressed onward. How the shells rained upon us now! A Yankee six-gun battery, on a hill about a half a mile off, turned its undivided attention upon us and essayed to shatter the advancing line. It did knock a gap here and there, but the break was mended almost as soon as broken, and the living wall kept on. Shells were bursting everywhere, until it seemed as if we were walking on torpedoes. They crackled, split, and exploded all around, 
throwing dirt and ejected little spurts of smoke that for a moment dimmed the sky. Colonel Mary dismounted, drew his sword from the scabbard, and looking the bow ideal of a splendid soldier, placed himself at the head of his men. He stopped for a moment and pointed his sword with an eloquent and vivid gesture toward the battery on the hill. A cheer answered him, and the line instinctively quickened its pace. Though the shells were tearing through the ranks, the men did not falter. One man's resonant voice was sounding above the din, exercising a magical influence. One man's figure strode on in front, and where he led, his men kept close behind. We followed unwaveringly our colonel over the hill, down the declivity, up the slope, straight across the plain toward the battery, with even ranks, though the balls were tearing away through flesh and blood. The brigade stretched out for several hundred yards, forming, as they marched, a bow with concave toward the enemy. The seventeenth was on the right of the line, and the other regiments dressed by our colors as we bore right oblique toward the battery, which was now hidden by a volleying fume that settled upon the crest. Still the advance was not stayed, nor the ranks broken. We neared the chin-house, when suddenly a long line of the enemy rose from behind an old stone wall, and poured straight in our breast a withering volley at point-blank distance. It was so unexpected, this attack, that it struck the long line of men like an electric shock. Many were falling killed or wounded, and but for the intrepid coolness of its colonel, the seventeenth would have retired from the field in disorder. His clear ringing voice was heard, and the wavering line reformed. A rattling volley answered the foe, and for a minute or two the contest was fiercely waged. Then the colonel fell with his knee frightfully shattered by a minnie-ball. Once down, the calm, reassuring tones heard no longer, the line broke. Now individual bravery made up for the disaster. The officers surged ahead with their swords waving in the air, cheering on the men, who kept close to their heels, loading and firing as they ran. The line of blue was not fifty yards distant, and every man took a sure, close aim before his finger pressed the trigger. It was a decisive fight of about ten minutes, and both sides stood up gamely to their work. Our foes were a western regiment from Ohio, who gave and received and asked no odds. The left of our brigade, having struck the enemy's right and doubled it up, now sent one volley into their flank. In a moment the blue line quivered and then went to pieces. Officers and men broke for the rear, one regimental colors captured by John Coleman of the 17th. In a few moments there were none left except the dead and the wounded. There was hardly a breathing spell, only time indeed to take a full draught from the canteen, transfer the cartridges from the haversacks to the cartridge box, and the enemy was upon us with a fresh line. We were now loading and firing at the swiftly approaching enemy, who were about two hundred yards distant, advancing straight toward us and yelling with their steady hurrah, so different from the rebel yell. It was a trying moment, and proved the mettle of the individual man. Some ran, or white with fear cowered behind the chin-house, while others hid in a long gully nearby. Others yet stood in an irregular form, and loaded and fired, unmindful of the dust and noise of the hurtling shell and screaming shot. On what small trifles hang a man's life in battle? Not a soldier in the army, but can recall some incident, some trivial event, that kept the vital spark within his frame. A stumble, a step to the right or left, a mere turn of the head, the raising of a musket, a book in the pocket, a handkerchief, a button. Such slight things save hundreds of lives, and what is harder to contemplate, lose them. 
a half-inch here or there, the tenth part of an inch it may be, and, lo, the result is as widely different from what it might have been as time is from eternity. No wonder that so many soldiers are fatalists. I was capping my gun in desperate haste to fire, when Frank Ballinger, gallant soldier he ever was, jumped directly in front of me and fired. At that very instant, before his finger could have left the trigger, a Yankee bullet, speeding invisibly through the air, bent on its deadly purpose of passing through my body, struck him, and he fell back into my arms, nerveless and almost pulseless. I heard him cry out, and then came from his throat the horrible sound of the death-rattle, which smote my ear for the first time. I placed my canteen to his lips. He tried to swallow, and then his glazing eyes showed that he was dead. Tearing open his jacket in frantic haste, I found that the bullet had struck him below the heart, passing clear through. The bullet meant for me. There was no time to indulge in feelings there. It is only around the campfire that we can afford to do that. The brigade was scattered everywhere now. For an hour they had fired as fast as the cartridges could be rammed home. When the Union troops came up to retake the chin house, our men began to give ground. On came the Yankees in splendid style with the stars and stripes waving, and their line capitally dressed. It was a perfect advance, and some of us forgot to fire our muskets while watching them. In their front was a little drummer beating a pasta charge, the only time we ever heard the inspiring sound on the battlefield. The dauntless little fellow was handling his sticks lustily, too, for the roll of the drum was heard above the noise of the guns. It was high time to be leaving, we thought, and now our men were turning to fire one good shot before heeling it to the rear, when right behind us there came with a rush and a vim a fresh rebel brigade aiming straight for the Yankees. They ran over us and we joined their lines. Not a shot was fired by them in response to the fusillade of musketry that was raining lead all around. Every man, with his head bent sideways and down, like people breasting a hailstorm, for soldiers always charged so, and the gray and the blue met with a mighty shock. A tremendous sheet of flame burst from our line. The weaker side went to the ground in a flash, and with a wild yell the gray swept on toward the six-gun battery that had been sending forth a stream of death for the past hour. We could only see the flashes of light through the dense smoke. The line stopped a moment at the foot of the hill to allow itself to catch up. It was late in the evening, and the battle was raging in all its deadliest fury. On our right, on our left, in the front, in the rear, from all directions came the warring sound of cannon and musketry. We could see nothing but smoke, breathe nothing except the fumes of burning powder, feel nothing save the earth jarred by the concussion of the guns, hear nothing but the dire tremendous clamor and blare of sound swelling up into a vast volume of fire. How hot it was! The claws damped with perspiration, the canteens empty, throats parched with thirst, faces blackened by powder, the men mad with excitement. The left of the line came up, and then someone asked, Whose brigade is this? Hood's, was the answer. Then burst a ringing cry. Forward, Texans! The line sprang up like a tightly bent bow suddenly loosened, and rushed up the hill in a wild, eager dash, a frenzied, maddening onset up the hill through the smoke, nearer and nearer to the guns. When about a hundred yards from them the dense veil lifted, floated upward and softly aside, and discovered to us that the battery had ceased firing. 
We could see the muzzles of the guns, their sullen black mouths pointing at us, and behind them the gunners, while from the center of the battery was a flag that lay drooping upon its staff. It was for a second only, like the rising of the curtain for a moment on a hideous tabloid, only to be dropped as the eye took in the scene in all its horrors. Yet it impressed itself, like vivid picture, brief as it was, upon mind, heart, and brain. At once came a noise like a thunder shock that seemed as if an earthquake had riven the place. The ground trembled with the concussion. The appalling sound was heard of iron grape-shot tearing its way through space and through bodies of bone, flesh, and blood. Mercifully for us, but not intended by our foes, the guns were elevated too high, or it would have been simply annihilation. For when those six guns poured their volley into the charging lines, they were loaded to the muzzle with grape, and the distance was only about pistol-shot. Of course the execution was fearful, and for a second the line was stupefied and nearly senseless from the blow. The ground was covered with victims, and the screams of the wounded rose high above the din and were awful to hear. The advance was not stayed long. "'Forward, boys! Don't stop now! Forward, Texans!' and with a cry from every throat the southerners kept on, officers and men together without form or order, the swiftest runners ahead, the slowest behind, tis true, but struggling desperately to better their time. Up, still up, until we reached the crest. As the Yankees pulled the lanyards of the loaded pieces, our men were among them, a terrific shock, a lane of dead in front. Those standing before the muzzles were blown to pieces like captured sepoy rebels. I had my hand on the wheel of one cannon just as it was fired, and I fell like one dead from the concussion. There was a frenzied struggle in the semi-darkness around the guns, so violent and tempestuous, so mad and brain-reeling, that to recall it is like fixing the memory of a horrible, blood-curdling dream. Everyone was wild with uncontrollable delirium. Then the mist dissolved, and the panting, gasping soldiers could see the picture as it was. The battery had been captured by the Texans, and every man at the pieces taken prisoner. Many were killed by a volley that we had poured into them when only a few paces distant, and a large proportion wounded. The few who escaped unhurt stood in a group, so blackened with powder that they ceased to look like white men. These soldiers had nobly worked their guns and had nothing to be ashamed of. All that men could do, they had done. The voices of the officers now called the men to rally. The grass was blackened. Indeed, the very ground beneath our feet was burnt to a cinder and still smoking. From the top of the hill we could see dark masses of the enemy about a mile off, rushing to the front, while on the right and left the reek and fog of the field hid the combatants from view. Not a dozen of the seventeenth could be seen in one place. They were scattered everywhere, mixed up and absorbed for the time in the reserves which ran over them. As for myself, I had the fight taken out of me by a bullet through the arm. It was but a flesh wound, but it hurt and prevented me from firing. In the valley below the chin house, where the dust was dense and blinding, the smoke heavy and stifling, it was hard for the brigade and the division to keep intact, and so the different organizations were all mingled, but maintained no less a heavy and deadly fire on that account. Occasional glimpses of the enemy were discernible, and as the evening wore on, it was discovered that they were giving ground. This yielding was only temporary, for about a half an hour before the sun went down, their reserves were brought up, and then the fire increased in volume until the detonations were something to make one shudder. In the line with which we were, the men lay flat on their breasts, 
firing more accurately and coolly than could have been done standing, delivering their pieces without calculation or aim. Just as the day was drawing to a close, a mighty yell arose, a cry from twice ten thousand throats as the rebel reserves, fresh from the rear, rushed resistlessly to the front. Never did mortal eyes behold a grander sight, not even when MacDonald put his columns in motion at Wagram, nor Ney charged the Russian center at Borodino. It was an extended line, reaching as far as the eye could see, crescent in form, and composed of many thousand men. It was, in fact, a greater part of Longstreet's corps. The onset was thrilling in the extreme, as the men swept grandly forward, the little battle flags with the southern cross in the center fluttering saucily and jauntily aloft, while the setting sun made of each bayonet and musket barrel a literal gleam of fire that ran along the chain of steel in a scintillating flame. As they swept over the plain, they took up all the scattered fighting material, and nothing was left but the wounded, which had sifted through, and the dead. Then ensued the death struggle, a last fearful grappling in mortal combat. The enemy threw forward all their reserves to meet the shock, and for a space of fifteen minutes the commotion was terrible. Bursts of sound surpassed everything that was ever heard or could be conceived. The baleful flashes of the cannon, darting out against the dusky horizon, played on the surface of the evening clouds like sharp, vivid lightning. Long lines of musketry vomited through the plain their furious volleys of pestilential lead, sweeping scores of brave soldiers into the valley of the shadow of death. And now, while a hundred thousand men were battling for supremacy, men gathered from ocean to ocean, from Maine to San Francisco, from north to south, east to west, from every hamlet and town, from every mountain and plain, while eight and her attendant furies stalked over the field, their swords reddened with the slaughter, the sun, as if glad to put an end to such frightful carnage, himself blood-red, sank below the top of a wooded hill. At last the enemy staggered, wavered, broke, and fled in utter rout. Where Longstreet was dealing his heavy blows, they were throwing away their knapsacks and rushing madly for the rear. Only one final stand was made by a brigade in the woods close by, but as the long gray line closed in on each flank, they threw down their arms and surrendered but with few exceptions. Those few, as they ran, turned and fired. On the hill, which had been occupied by the Washington artillery of eighteen guns in the earlier part of the day, the eye took in a dim and fast-fading yet extended view of the whole surrounding country. A vast panorama stretched out on an open plain with patches of wood here and there on its surface and with but two or three hills in the whole range of sight to break the expanded level. It was unutterably grand. Jackson could be seen, swinging his left on his right as a pivot, and Longstreet with his entire corps in the reverse method. The whole Yankee army was in retreat, and certainly nothing but darkness prevented it from being une affaire flambée. The battle was over, and night mercifully covered a scene of slaughter having no parallel in song or story of the new world. The carnage had been appalling. Over four thousand lay cold and rigid on the bosom of Mother Earth, fourteen thousand men of a common race and a common ancestry, speaking one language, having but one tradition, lay under the light of the stars, disfigured and maimed, torn and bleeding. As the soldiers returned from the field, the day's work over, Picking their way with care, the excitement died away, and the reaction came. 
The cries and groans of this vast host of wounded were borne on the breeze from every side, and one who heard the tidal wave of agony as it swelled and surged toward heaven was fain to clasp his hands over his ears and shut out the torturing sound. Happy was he among the writhing mass whose agony was quenched in the lethe of a mortal hurt. Show a soldier not utterly hardened when the excitement of battle is over his own handiwork, Tell him that his own finger had sped the missile that laid yonder man low, and ten to one he would recall the fatal act if he could. Some great thinker once wrote, Give me the money that has been spent in war, and I will purchase every foot of land upon the globe. I will clothe every man, woman, and child in an attire of which kings and queens might be proud. I would build a schoolhouse on every hillside and in every valley on the whole earth. I would erect an academy in every town and endow it, a college in every state and fill it. I would crown every hill with a place of worship, consecrated to the promulgation of the gospel of peace. I would support in every pulpit an able preacher, so that on every Sabbath morning the chimes on one hill would answer the chimes on another, until the melody of the sweet-sounding bells would girdle the globe with its music and invocation to heaven. This is a calculation of so much money. Suppose the moralizer had carried the computation a little further. For paltry considerations in the expenditures of war of dollars and cents are as nothing in the general summing up. Reckon up the killed, and you would have a mighty host. Collect the tears that have been shed over soldiers slain in battle, and you would have an ocean. Mass the evil passions, the hate, the bitter burning rancor and revenge that war has engendered, and you have a Gehenna. Yet men are born warriors and fight from instinct. All forces wage an unending war. From chaos until now, between beak and spear, claw and tearing tooth, heel and horn, sting and tightening coil, has the invisible war been raging. In this battle, the consumption of ammunition in the first brigade was enormous. The soldiers literally fired away the last cartridge, making an average of sixty per man, or one hundred and eighty thousand ounces of lead, sent northward on its errand of deviltry. Many fired more. I used up all of my allowance and filled my cartridge box twice from the profuse supplies scattered on the field, and at the end of the battle I had ten left, making one hundred and thirty rounds fired. No wonder that my shoulder was black and blue, and that my face was so scorched and blackened by the burnt powder that my identity was hidden and my own comrades did not know me until I spoke. On this day our soldiers found out the worthlessness of the mini-musket, thousands of which lay abandoned on the field, because after a score or two of shots the barrel would foul and the bullet could not be driven home. The ramrod was so slender as to possess little weight, and it would get so greasy from the cartridge as to slip through the hands. The Enfield musket was by far the best arm the infantry ever had. End of chapter 27